I'm Aaron Hinkin. Welcome to Life in the Balance, a monthly radio program here on WYPR where we give our attention to marginalized voices and we focus on significant issues that can often get sidelined in the larger policy world. Today, we're going to be giving the focus to people in the community who are working hard to advocate for the rights of the disabled. We're going to speak with an attorney with Disabled Rights Maryland and with the chairperson for the Consumers for Accessible Ride Services. First up, though, I want to welcome to the table two representatives of Open Society Institute, the organization that enables fellowships in Baltimore for people looking to make meaningful grassroots changes in the city. To help us learn more about the fellowship program, joining us in studio is Evan Serpik. He is Director of Strategic Communications and Pamela King, Director of Community Fellowships and Initiatives, both of Open Society Institute Baltimore. And welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Evan Serpik, I'm going to start with you. For those unfamiliar with Open Society Institute, what's the organization's goal? How does it operate? So Open Society Institute Baltimore was founded 20 years ago. This is our 20th anniversary this year. And uh, we were founded as the only U.S. field office of an international foundation, Open Society Foundations. And the thinking was really to come into a U.S. city that had problems that were really deeply entrenched, um, that were typical of other cities around the country, and really um, pour a lot of thought and strategic thinking into how to address them. So we uh, have focused on three areas, uh, criminal justice reform, um, health equity, addiction and health equity, and um, education and youth development. In addition to that, we have the Community Fellowships Program, which Pam has been the director of since the beginning, 20 years ago, which is really uh, to support social entrepreneurs working in communities uh, on uh, to really to creative solutions to problems. And that's, that's really been a very strong point from the beginning. Talk to me about OSI's Baltimore Justice Report. Sure. So that was a report that we started about three years ago, um, really to keep up to date, to keep uh, our community and our supporters up to date on, on what's happening with our work and in the city generally. So as things like the consent decree or bail reform or safe consumption spaces, different issues that are sort of fast changing, we really like to keep people up to date on um, opportunities to for change, ways people can support our work, ways we can support our grantees. OSI has a number of focus areas, uh, post-incarceration, addiction resources. Talk about what is at the top of the agenda these days as far as what OSI is targeting and prioritizing. Well, within those three programs, you know, there's um, particularly in the education program, we're really working with uh, changing the way we think about school discipline um, and restorative practices in particular. We've been working, our director, uh, Karen Weber there, has been really leading the charge to institute restorative practices and gotten working with the school district. They're now planning to become a restorative district over the next five years, which will be drastically reduce the number of suspensions, keep kids in school, uh, resolve conflicts. That's sort of a a big focus. Um, Within the criminal justice program, I know bail reform uh, has been a big focus, a major campaign. Um, For addiction and health equity, it has traditionally been access to treatment, making sure people have access to treatment. Now we're really focused on reducing overdose. It's just the opioid epidemic has become so overwhelming that um, we're trying to educate folks about the possibility of a safe consumption space here in Baltimore, which is a new idea um, that is being discussed in different cities around the country. And really the primary function of OSI is the facilitation of the community fellowship program. Pamela King, that's where you come in. Talk to us about how that program works. We, and um, congratulations, uh, by the way. You just you won an award from yeah. the Baltimore Business Journal. Yes, I did. Leaders so, in Diversity. Leaders in Diversity Award. Congratulations yes, thank on you. that. Thank you so much. I do, I look, I've already distracted you from the I question. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the with the fellowships, uh, you know, part of what Open Society and the whole concept of Open Society and the, and the philosophy is about we don't all have all the answers. 
And so when we uh, designed the program, it was with that in mind. Like we have specific areas uh, that Evan just talked about that, um, you know, that we that we work in. But we also thought, well, there are other things that are happening in community and they need to be addressed. We wanted to have a problem, uh, a way to uh, have people come to us to help resolve some of those problems um, and, and, and to create the necessary social change in those areas. And that's what the fellowships program is all about. I imagine, in a sense, OSI's Community Fellows Program is a way for you to have eyes and ears on the ground and be aware of issues and problems that maybe as an institution you would, weren't even on your radar. Um, I think that is true. Um, there have been some examples over the years. We had, um, for example, the suspension expulsion issue um, of, of young people in the Baltimore City Public School System was brought to us um, by an OSI Baltimore community fellow early on. You're talking been, about disparities in the rates of suspension and expulsion based on socioeconomic and racial yeah, status. Yeah, in 2000. And so, you know, there, at, at one point, and there was not a lot of great coordination between, you know, the, the school police, the whatever the office is in the, in the system that's supposed to handle suspensions and making sure kids are getting educated even though they're out of school. And it was brought to our attention, the, the number of reasons that kids are getting suspended, some of the real hardships, you know, kids being afraid to go to school, bringing weapons because they were afraid to walk through their own communities, that kind of thing. And so that actually started our work, that kicked off our work. Uh, more than 10 years ago now as it relates to the suspension and expulsion. Back in 2001, uh, Wanda Best was one of our fellows who introduced the idea of food security to us, which was not a topic that we um, knew. That was a new term in 2001. It was a new term in 2001. And so since that time, a number of fellows um, have uh, brought the whole concept of food security, food rescue, food deserts, you know, all those uh, terms that relate to uh, uh, food security um, to us, and there's now a really nice cohort of fellows who are working in that um, in that area, and I think they also contributed to the energy that has resulted in the city as it relates to urban farms and either the urban garden or having grocery stores in the community to serve um, that offer healthy foods or whatever. So uh, I think that was brought to us also um, by the fellows. And so it's, it's those are the things that people bring to us that we can kind of support. The problems are there, but then when someone shines a light on them, they have a name. And when they have a name, you can make a plan. That's right. What are you guys looking for in a candidate for these programs? Maybe we've got a listener who might be interested in applying in the future. Of course we do. Um, there are, it's very open. People make the case to us. They tell us what's missing in the community, and they have to bring to it um, the skills, whatever the skills are. Um, there's no formal education that's required. It really is all about experience and, and the ability to get it done. But they make the case to us about what they think should should um, be happening in the community, and we look at it based on what, whether or not we think they can pull it off. You've been doing this for 20 years now? 20 years now. Talk about how many fellows a year you endow, how you support them. We select up to 10 fellows per year. Uh, it's for it's over 18 months. Each fellowship is 18 months. Um, they receive a, a $60,000 stipend over the 18-month 18, 18 period. Um, they also get some project startup money, and everyone should have health insurance. So that's in addition to the $60,000 um, uh, stipend. 
Um, and there's lots of other ways that we support um, the fellows that are not monetary. And so some of it's in technical assistance. Um, we Fellows meet monthly in what we call gatherings, and they share information with each other. We have a newsletter uh, that's very fellow-centric. We are in partnership with um, Business Volunteers of Maryland for technical assistance with, with um for, so to help folks sort of like, you know, shore up um, their initiatives. So there's lots of um, direct and indirect support that um, individuals get once they become a fellow. Talk about the backgrounds that these fellows come from. Are they, they we're not talking about like career uh, nonprofit uh, people, programmatic people, uh, people from a variety of backgrounds. Yeah, no, they're, they're not. So it's not, like I said, it's not like a formal education kind of thing. So it's someone who could have been previously incarcerated, for example. And there is something that they know that they can bring to the table as it relates to other folks who are ex-offenders. Um, and so they, they bring that. They could be someone who is, you know, disabled all their lives in some, in some um, aspect. And they're like, you know, there's some inequities here as it relates to how um, this community is treated in Baltimore. And so they bring that expertise and experience to the table. So it is really, in terms of experience and what personal experiences people have, it is extremely diverse. You are enabling your community fellows to make grassroots change. You're also, I'm guessing, making a major change in them personally. Talk about the long-term effects of the program. What fellows do after their 18 months are done? Do well, they continue in the field? Yeah, most people do. Like I would say between 70 and 80 percent of the initiatives that were founded by fellows still exist and have grown and developed and, have, and are making great change. Some fellows whose maybe initiatives weren't as successful as they had imagined are still in the advocacy arena. And, uh, and I think pretty much all of them to uh, a person would tell you that the experience of being able to have that freedom to take on an initiative and not be um, have someone like second guessing you, micromanaging you, ability to take the initiative in the direction that they feel is necessary uh, was sort of life changing for them, even if even if their initiative wasn't as successful as they had imagined that it would be. Pamela, let me have you speak a little more philosophically about the OSI Community Fellows Program. It seems like an interesting alternative to the kind of nonprofit industrial complex, right? Where you have these big outside organizations showing up yeah. somewhere with what they think are all the answers and the plans. Yeah. Well, you know, the folks who are, you know, change happens from an individual saying this needs to happen. And the nice thing about the fellowship opportunity is there's this entity, the Open Society Institute Baltimore saying, look, if you think you have something that can make change, we'll, we'll invest in you. And so all change starts with a person. And, um, and, but you have to get others to invest in your concept and your idea. You have to have partnerships. Uh, at some point, you know, you even have to have more funding um, in some cases. Some initiatives don't cost as much as one might think, but they have a lot of um, folks who are willing to work with them um, to make it happen. And it is community-based. Evan Serpik, let me turn back to you, uh, maybe for a little overview of the past 20 years, uh, the time, effort, money that's gone into these programs. Um, talk about the progress that's been made, how much of a dent it's made, and um, you know how much further we need to continue moving forward. Yeah, it's been really interesting uh, as we mark the 20th anniversary, we've been sort of looking at 
changes that have happened as a result of our work, which is always very rewarding, but also sort of realizing how much more work needs to be done. So we look at things like uh, mass incarceration has dropped because specifically of some of our programs, um, uh, making parole more accessible, um, working uh, with police reform. We work to bring the consent degree here, so things like that we, we can point to. Um, you know, in the drug addiction arena, we introduced buprenorphine, the Baltimore Buprenorphine Initiative, which is a really effective treatment um, that has really, we've trained doctors to do that. So we've given a lot of people access to uh, to drug treatment. Um, you know, in education, we've um, had a, I think, a 20 or 30% drop in suspensions because of our work. So we look at things like that. And honestly, though, looking at the Fellows Network, just to, to say, I mean, I um, find it incredibly rewarding uh, as someone who came into um Open Society three years ago as a Baltimorean, someone who's passionate about the city, to realize how many of the best things that I love about Baltimore started with fellowships. Things like Wide Angle Youth Media, which does great work. Things like the book thing of Baltimore. Um, community conferencing, which recently changed their name to Restorative Justice Baltimore, I think. Um, so really, the fellowships just sort of, in addition to all this policy work, which can sometimes seem very... Um, uh, deliberate and slow and things like that. You see every year just incredibly passionate people uh, who apply to become fellows and um, their work is just really transformative. So it's really rewarding. I can only imagine this conversation has piqued the interest of uh, people with good ideas uh, and plans and um, talk about where you are in your uh, current selection process and in the future how folks can be in touch with you. Okay. So, well, you know, um, we are we we had our first day line in March of um, this year, of course, and um, you know we will select in September, and we uh, will open the process again in January of 2019. And folks can just call the Open Society and um, ask to be put on our mailing list, and we're happy to do that. You've got some time between now and then, listeners, to uh, <laughs> or, uh, prepare your plans. Evan Serpic, Director of Strategic Communications for OSI Baltimore, and Pamela King, Director of Community Fellowships and Initiatives for the Open Society Institute Baltimore. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you. According to recent U.S. Census data, more than 10% of the population in Baltimore City under the age of 65 was estimated to have a disability. The law requires equal access for people with disabilities, but what is the reality here in the city? Coming up after the break, we're going to meet former OSI fellow Kate Anderson. She is an attorney with Disability Rights Maryland. We're also going to be joined by the chairperson of the Consumers for Accessible Ride Services. That's a community-based group that pushes for policies to help disabled riders have access to transportation here in Baltimore. You're tuned to Life in the Balance. We'll be right back.
I'm Aaron Henkin. You're listening to Life in the Balance. If you commuted to work this morning, odds are you drove in your car. The census says about 86% of us commute to work by automobile in the U.S. And here in the Baltimore area, we clock in with one of the longest commutes in the country, around 31 minutes. But if you're disabled and you are relying on the Maryland Transit Authority to get around, how long does that commute get? Kate Anderson was an Open Society Institute fellow back in 2013. She used her time as a fellow to help put power in the hands of disabled transit riders, establishing a self-governing accessible transportation advisory committee composed of people with disabilities. Today, she is an attorney working with Disability Rights Maryland. And Kate, welcome to the program. Thank you, Aaron. We're also joined by Mike Gerlach, chairperson of the Consumers for Accessible Rides Services. And Mike, by the way, we should mention for the purposes of this conversation, is legally blind. Mike, thank you for being here. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Let me start with you, Kate Anderson. Talk about your work to create the Accessible Transportation Advisory Committee. What is it? Who's on it? And why do we need it? So my work with the uh, uh, Accessible Transportation Advisory Committee, which later became the Consumers for Accessible Ride Services, arose out of work that I had done at Disability Rights Maryland as an intern. Uh, DRM had sued MTA Mobility back in uh, 2006 for problems with their mobility paratransit service. And the paratransit service is something that MTA is required by the Americans with Disabilities Act to offer um, as a complement to the fixed route for people with disabilities who can't access the bus, light rail, metro um, because of their disability. And um, we had really, DRM had really uh, kind of worked to build a relationship with MTA as a part of that prior lawsuit to work to address issues with the paratransit service. And when the lawsuit came to an end, unfortunately, MTA's interest in working directly with paratransit riders to address those issues also came to an end. And so I worked to develop CARS along with Mike and our other amazing members who have been working with Disability Rights Maryland for most of them a better part of a decade to formalize a consumer voice and really work to educate not just CARS members, but spread the word about rider rights to other paratransit riders in the Baltimore area. You said a lot there. Sorry. Uh, and, no, that's good. Uh, and uh, a lot of uh, acronyms flying around just uh, for to keep listeners uh, in the loop and straightened out here. DRM is Disability Rights Maryland. Yes. That's your organization. MTA, of course, Maryland Transit Authority. Uh, and then now you're talking about this paratransit system. Talk about what that is. Is it vans? Is it How does that work? So the paratransit system here in Baltimore is made up of a big almost school bus looking vans. Um, They're called cutaways and they are actually relatively unpleasant for riders. They, They don't have a great ride. They're they're really bumpy. They often have issues with breakdowns, um, you know, lack of heat, lack of air conditioning. Um, and then there's also sedans that are part of the service. So you'll see, uh, basically, they look like taxis that are branded MTA Mobility. What I'm hearing you say is that 
the Maryland Transit Authority isn't necessarily particularly self-motivated to keep itself in tip-top shape when it comes to paratransit and disability uh, compliance, um, and that it takes an organized advocacy group to keep them on their toes. Yeah, I think unfortunately, MTA paratransit services, like a lot of paratransit agencies across the country, are really underfunded. It's a pretty expensive service to run, and it requires a lot of coordination and a lot of a lot of management. And I think that the service is unfortunately underfunded here in Baltimore, and it leads to a lot of difficulties for riders. There's a big trickle-down effect. What are the current laws out there that uh, they should be abiding by to ensure equal access? So in order to get access to the paratransit service, you have to go through an eligibility process. And that's actually, that was a focus of the lawsuit that my organization brought back in 2014. And we settled that last year. And we were really finding that riders, particularly riders who had been eligible for a significant period of time in the past, were being told that they were no longer eligible. Um, It was really impacting a lot of people, particularly people with um, mental health issues um, or people who didn't have obvious physical disabilities. And um, so we, we've really worked, we've been working to try to address some of those issues with initial access to the service. It's part of the settlement monitoring that we're working on, um, and that we'll, we'll be continuing to work on for the next two years. Um, some other things that have come up are regarding telephone access. You know, unlike people who can use the MTA bus or light rail, you can't just walk up to a mobility vehicle and get a ride. You have to call in at least a day in advance to schedule your ride. And we had clients who were waiting, you know, sometimes up to an hour on hold in order to schedule a ride. Um Other issues that CARS is currently really taking a big interest in have to do with on-time performance. So mobility is required by federal law to provide a pickup window and um, to get people to their destinations in about the same time it would take them on the bus or light rail. And that's something that we consistently hear from riders, especially the CARS members, that that doesn't happen. And again, CARS is the acronym for? The Consumers for Accessible Ride Services. I guess there's uh, sort of an inherent wrinkle here because the folks who are making the policies uh, aren't necessarily, probably not, disabled. Uh, And so they're just not walking a mile in the shoes of this constituency and just literally don't know what they need to be doing. Yeah, I think unfortunately, you know, there seems to be an, a perception that people want mobility because it's easier. And that really doesn't is doesn't reflect the client experience. You know, I I consistently hear and I'm sure Mike can confirm that, you know, people would not use mobility if they didn't absolutely have to. It is it's a lifeline. It represents independence for people with disabilities. But it's not a convenience. It's it's a necessity. Mike Gerlach, let me turn to you now and get a little bit more of a sense of your biography. Uh, as I understand it, um, you have had a, um, a visual um, deterioration over years. You were not always blind. 
No, I, I have what's called cone rod dystrophy, which is a gradual deterioration of the cones and the rods within the retinas. So it, it, I was, I think my mom first noticed it when I was about eight years old. So I was born with just normal vision, but this particular disease is a gradual deterioration throughout the course of your life. So I've been, it's been a very slow deterioration. So it, it, it gets, and it, the thing that's really challenging is, is that it's constantly changing. Whereas someone who's totally blind, you know, you're, you're totally blind and you're set in your ways and the way you do things. Whereas I'm constantly finding and having to change the way that I do things to get around. Say how old you are right now and talk about what you can and can't see. You're legally blind. Yeah, I'm 58 years old. And basically what I can see now is it's light perception and, and um, shapes. And then to also go along with that, I have what's called a nystagmus, which is a neurological disorder that goes along with that a lot of times. So a lot, what I see sometimes, it's like watching a snowy TV screen on a bumpy road. Wow. So you're not going to walk outside and uh, use the um, regular Maryland Transit Authority system to get from here to, say, like Fort McHenry. No, <clears throat> not an option for you. Not really. Not specifically because of where I live. Mm-hmm. I, the way that mobility runs is they will run uh, or pick up or drop off three quarters of a mile outside of either where the fixed route goes, the metro or the light rail. So for me to get up to a bus stop that's close to my house, it's probably about a quarter of a mile. So it it would be a little bit dangerous for me especially I would have since I would have to cross route 40 to get to the bus stop. Talk about your um daily travels, your daily commutes. What kind of commutes are you doing? Talk about the work you do and how long it takes to get there. Well, <laughs> actually I am semi-retired and work a lot out of my house, but when I do have meetings or when I need to go someplace uh, like Kate was saying, you've got to call mobility a day, be- at least one day before to set up the ride. So I'll, I'll use today, for example. I called yesterday and told him that I needed to, you know, I gave him the address here, told him what time I needed to be here by, and and then they will set up a ride for them to come back and pick me up. So then that's that's part one. So then the next day we get to today, then I have to wait for mobility to come pick me up. And since I had a trip set up for 1125 to get here by 1245 today, they have 30 minutes to come pick me up. That's the window that they have to pick me up before that ride is considered late. So they picked me up uh, probably about 1153, two minutes within the window. I see. And then I was brought directly here. So, and then, and it is a shared ride, some mm-hmm. situations. So sometimes they will have to stop and pick up other people or drop other people off. So you're calling a day ahead to make the appointment. You've right. got a half hour window of when they may or may not be there. Right. Okay. You're in a really interesting position, it seems to me, to talk about the way people in the disability community are maybe sort of sidelined or marginalized in society because this has been a gradual 
uh, progression for you, this vision loss. Right. Um, have you felt yourself being treated differently by uh, the people around you in the community, by society, as you've uh, progressively lost more and more of your vision? That's a great question. Um, people that I've known my whole life understand what I go through, so that's easy. But the thing that I've noticed is when I meet new people and they find out that I am visually impaired, they they have that stigma sometimes of, of how you meet and treat a blind person because they don't, they've never, they haven't known me for my whole life. So they're just, they're picking up on me at this point in my, in my life. And sometimes they don't know how to act. Sometimes they'll grab you by the arm and say, here, let me help you or... And there are ways to, there's, they call it the Ten Commandments of Disabilities, where it's, there's certain etiquette when it comes to how you treat people with disabilities. Ten Commandments. You got, you have a couple you can lay on us? Um, well, the one is, you know, lay, not grabbing someone, like, who is blind and asking them, can I help you? Or, you know, do you need some assistance? Instead of just going, oh, here, I'll take you across the street. You have people who are in wheelchairs, and one of the things that a lot of people do, and it's if, you, if you're not around this kind of thing all the time, people will lean on somebody's wheelchair sometimes, or mm. they'll, they'll pat somebody in a wheelchair on the head, or, and that's, you just don't do those kind of things. Yeah. Because a person who's in a wheelchair considers that chair part of their person. So you wouldn't want me to come up and just like lean on you, right. and, you know, without me asking if it was okay yeah i imagine there are a lot of perfectly well-intentioned people who just make faux pas after faux pas just right because but but i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off but here's here's the thing someone who is disabled and is an advocate or a, a lot just someone who's just trying to help someone out we use those kind of things sometimes as a learning moment and teach people that hey this is this is how you do something and not grab me like you know just please ask me where i need to go or what to do so it's it's you want to educate and not chastise right it's got to be exhausting though i mean psychologically um to have to you know be an ambassador for all blind people all the time well it, it i guess it's it's like any anything, you know, any any kind of a situation for anyone who tries to advocate in whatever aspect. It 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 almost becomes second nature, though. You, you don't think of it as being psychologically taxing. It's just you just live with it. That's the voice of Mike Gerlach, chairperson of the Consumers for Accessible Ride Services. Also in studio with us, Kate Anderson of Disability Rights, Maryland. I'm Aaron Henkin. You're tuned to Life in the Balance. We're going to continue this conversation after the break when we'll hear how Kate and Mike are using citizen advocacy as a tool for policy change here in the state of Maryland. We'll be right back.
You're tuned to 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, where you can hear life in the balance on the first Wednesday of every month at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. You can also check out past episodes of this show on your own schedule when you subscribe to the Life in the Balance podcast. You can find it at wypr.org slash podcastcentral. That's also where you can find some great new homegrown WYPR programs available exclusively as podcasts. The Noir and Bazaar is a podcast about occult history, ghosts, haunted houses, and secret crimes, with a special emphasis on stories that draw on the rich history and culture of Baltimore. And Knock Knock Who's There is a curiosity-driven podcast about opening doors and finding out who or what is behind them. Check out WYPR's menu of podcast offerings at wypr.org slash podcastcentral. Welcome back to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin. We've been speaking with former Open Society Institute Community Fellow Kate Anderson of Disability Rights Maryland, along with Mike Gerlock. He is chairperson of the Consumers for Accessible Ride Services. Mike, who is legally blind, has had direct experiences with the challenges disabled persons face in the city when it comes to transportation. And Mike, uh, you are the chairperson of Consumers for Accessible Ride Services, CARS, excellent acronym. Um, Tell us about CARS. Tell us about what you do as an organization. Basically, what we try to do is facilitate change within MTA to ensure that citizens who are using paratransit are being treated fairly and basically just able to use the quote-unquote world-class service that MTA provides. It's important for you to have a communal voice. You guys are also the most sensible source of information. You're the ones riding, using the services. You've got the user experience. You know what's working, what's not working. Right. We're, we're so, we can sometimes be like secret shoppers Yeah. In the, <laughs> on the vehicles or when making reservations. Kate Anderson, talk about your relationship with uh, this committee, Consumers for Accessible Ride Services. Your work dovetails with them quite closely. Yeah, uh, our work with CARS is really a a mutually beneficial relationship. So we, DRM really works with CARS to make sure that the members understand what their legal rights are um, as part of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Not just so the CARS members know, but because they do a lot of work in educating their fellow riders, whether it be through public meetings or just talking to people while they're on the vehicles. And so CARS has been able to address a lot of rider issues uh, thanks to that training Cars is also our cars members are really you know our our eyes and ears in the rider community. Um, you know they're able to educate DRM on what issues are ongoing. Um, you know what issues they really feel like need to need to be addressed and require legal assistance. And so they help us kind of access information and keep an eye on the system in a way that we couldn't just through our general intake process. 
So it, I think it's really been a very mutually beneficial relationship. And working with CARS uh, speaks to one of the main tenets of you know Disability Rights Maryland's work, which is supporting self-advocacy. Um, obviously, the people who are affected by the policies and the systems that are set up are the are best placed to say what's working and what isn't. What are the top priority issues right now on the table for you guys? Uh, you mentioned, you know, the Maryland Transit Authority's got some right ideas, but they're underfunded. Uh, you also mentioned that there might be some say, internal communication breakdowns within the MTA about what needs to be happening on the ground. So I think for us, uh, from DRM's perspective, our priority issues are still very much focused on monitoring our settlement of the class action that we entered into last year with MTA. So we're really looking hard at uh, eligibility certification issues to make sure that people who need to access the service are given the right to do so. Talk about that settlement, that class action suit. Yeah, so uh, actually this whole lawsuit came about thanks very much to the work that CARS members were doing in educating DRM on some of the current issues. CARS members were doing things uh, like keeping logs of letting us to let us know how long they were waiting on hold for in order to schedule rides or check on late rides. Um, we had several members come to us who had been longtime riders of um, the mobility service and all of a sudden lost their eligibility. Um, when nothing had changed in their lives, nothing, you know, there hadn't been any magic cure to their disability. They hadn't, you know, nothing had gotten better. Um, so we really worked, uh, very closely with cars to develop our lawsuit. And now that the suit has settled, they act as our advisors in, as we monitor that settlement. So again, they, they help us look at what's going on with the system. They make recommendations for how a DRM should advocate and things that they would like to see changed within the system. Um, and then, you know, we keep working together on other issues that are outside of that settlement. So, for instance, I guess it was last year, uh, several CARS members brought to us an issue with transportation to the airport. Turns out that, you know, mobility had a policy where if you were, it didn't matter if you were being picked up or dropped off at BWI, you could only be picked up or dropped off down at door 18, which is uh, in by the light rail. Yeah, down by the light rail station at the international arrivals um, section. Then you're walking a good quarter mile to the terminals. Exactly. Well, yeah, not only that, but if you have a a flight on Southwest, yeah. you've got to walk all the way around the airport That's to get to the other gets. side. Right, right. So basically, you know, we brought this to the attention of management at MTA, and we were able to set it up so that when mobility drops someone off at the airport, they can be dropped off at whatever airline they need to be present for. And also, we set it up so that there, besides having a door at exit or at, at gate 18, we now have a a pickup over at door one, which is on the other side of the airport for people, so that they don't have to walk all the way around. And and it was one of those things where we brought it to MTA's attention, and they were like that makes a lot of sense, mm-hmm. and we were able to you know work together to to fix that problem. 
I wonder if you guys might talk about, I'm curious about your relationship with the folks at the MTA. I mean, when you level a class action lawsuit against uh, an organization, you know, obviously there's, that raises some hackles, but I mean, you're all in this together. You're working together and you're, you're, I imagine the goal is cooperation. Yeah, you know, I I think that sometimes we don't always see eye to eye on issues, but I I think in the long run, you know, the goal is the same to ensure that people are getting access to the service that they need and it's not just it's not just adequate that it's that it's excellent service and that people with disabilities are not um, you know, being subjected to a service that's subpar. And so I, I do think that, you know, our, our goals are the same and we may not always see eye to eye, but I, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, it's about making sure that Mike and uh, the other CARS members and paratransit riders as a whole are able to use trans- public transportation services to fully access the community the way that everybody else can. One of the things that we also do, and I think we have a a, a very good rapport with NTA now and you know, some of the people who are in management and we've worked hard to to gain that rapport but the one thing that people have to remember is management doesn't always see what's going on in the vehicles on the phones so we're kind of the boots on the ground and we've been able to call management certain people within management and say, hey, you know, we've got a problem here and th- this is a persistent problem. And then they will go and look towards fixing it. One of the big things that is that we really have been working on is what's called door to door. So basically when a mobility dr- a driver comes to pick you up, they're supposed to come to your door and then escort you to the vehicle from the from the first door, the outside door to the vehicle. And there are a lot of drivers who weren't doing that. Hmm. So what would happen is they, some of the, the management was like, okay, well, you know, if you see it happening, just let us know. So we were able to find people who weren't doing door-to-door. And then we, like Kate was saying before, we make these logs and, and, just let, and then let them know that this is what was occurring. And because of the other providers that work within mobility – they they are really strict on making sure that this is happening. I wonder um, what you can do to uh, encourage folks in the community the, who are not disabled to um, understand and care about the cause of your advocacy group. I mean, everyone's in this together. Um, and I, I guess to that point, maybe I'll I'll turn to you, Kate. Um, you are uh, do you have any disabilities yourself? I do not know. What's uh, what's your personal stake in this? My personal stake is that this is it's a civil rights issue. You know, it. I think that disability can touch anyone at any point in their lives, uh, whether it be a, a personal disability or something that is affecting a family member or friend. Just and temporary. Yeah, or just something. You temporary. can walk out of this building and, and fall, and your legs broken. You're temporarily disabled, so puts you into that category, at least for that point of time. Exactly. And so I think that, you know, people just listening to this program should care because it it really, it's not just about, 
you know, people with disabilities. It is about our community as a whole and ensuring that there's equal access to all of the public services that are people that people are paying for with their tax dollars and, um, you know, ensuring that people have the ability to work and go to school and fully participate in community life. That benefits everybody. Let me just give you each a chance to share some words of advice um, for folks who might feel intimidated or discouraged by a, a problem that seems too big to solve. I would say that there there are programs and people out there who are there to support you. Um, if you are having an issue with MTA mobility, please feel free to call DRM. Our intake line is 410-727-6352. We're absolutely there to provide information and advice and sometimes representation in issues regarding uh, eligibility um, or other legal issues that may arise. And CARS is also a really great resource. Many of the members have been actively involved with the organization for the better part of a decade, even before they were a formalized group. So I know that Mike is really looking for new members and uh, there's a couple of specific issue areas that he's interested in as well. One piece of advice is that there's no problem big enough that it can't be overcome. I'm a prime example of that. Uh, I've never let anything stop me from doing what I wanted to do, maybe except driving. <laughs> but, um, but for the most part, I don't... I don't the word can't doesn't exist in my vocabulary. I've, I've learned that through the course of my life. And one of the things that we're trying to do with cars is to show people who may have become apathetic over the years that saying, well, you know, MTA is not going to listen to our issues, is that you've got a voice here. We are looking for people to, you know, talk to, and we, we are setting up town hall meetings through different organizations to give people the opportunity to come out come out and speak their minds about what the problems are and let them know that people do care and that we are trying to fix these problems. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity for people to be part of the solution. And that's, you know, that's really what we are working to support through our work with cars is, you know, I even the smallest thing, it might not seem significant to people to call and, and register complaints when they have a problem, but that it's, really... It's incredibly important. It's incredibly important, and it helps fuel our work, and, and everyone can help be part of the solution. Because if if you've got 10 people that have a problem, but they don't complain, then MTA, or any organization for that matter, might look at that and say, well, nobody's complaining, so everything must be working right. Right. So if people don't get involved and they don't express their concerns, then change is not going to happen. And one last thing, Mike Gerlach, uh, let folks know where they can be in touch to find more information about uh, CARS, Consumers for Accessible Ride Services. Yeah, sure. We have a website that's called carsbaltimore.org, and we put up some information for everyone. We've got some pamphlets that are available with uh, what your rights are. Uh, we have a podcast that we're trying to start up through that. And also the information on how to contact us if you have any problems is all on there. Our email and our phone number and everything is available on the website, carsbaltimore.org.
Mike Gerlach is chairperson of the Consumers for Accessible Ride Services. Kate Anderson is of Disability Rights Maryland. And uh, Mike, Kate, thank you both for uh, being with us today. Thanks, Erin. Thank you. That is going to wrap things up for today's program. For those interested, by the way, in Open Society Institute Community Fellowships, you can visit their website, osibaltimore.org. Life in the Balance is an original production of WYPR. The show is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. You can listen back to this episode at wypr.org slash lifeinthebalance. And you can reach us with your thoughts and questions at Life in the Balance at wypr.org. This program airs here on WYPR on the first Wednesday of the month at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Aaron Hinkin. Thanks for listening.